You are listening to a sermon from our Voices Sermon Series at Doxa Church in Bellevue, Washington. In this fourth iteration of this series, we're taking some time to listen to and learn from the pastors of other churches. To find out more, please visit us at www.doxa-church.com. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, and the magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you, and they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. This is the word of the Lord. It's my privilege this morning to introduce to you Bill Clem. Uh, he'll be uh, batting cleanup in this year's Voices series, going to be uh, talking to us from the book of Daniel, and I'm looking forward to that. I heard most of the 9 a.m., and uh, it's a great message. I think it's timely for us as a church. Uh, Bill is a godly man. He has pastored so many people, and he's pastored a lot of pastors and leaders. He has poured a lot of his life into those that are pouring their life into others for the sake of the gospel. Um, He, in many ways, is at least partially to blame and or credit for Doxa even being here. Many years ago, he planted a church in Seattle called Doxa and uh, called Jeff Vanderstel and asked and invited him to come out to Seattle. And so actually, much of the reason that Jeff is even here in this region is because uh, of Bill's work and ministry. Um, They worked together for a time, and then they ended up planting out of that what became SOMA, which then in turn planted this doxa. So things have really kind of come full circle. And it's a really cool moment of unity and beauty to have you here. Um, So I just want to pray for you before you preach the word to us. Jesus, thank you for this man. 
Thank you for the many ways that he has actively worshipped you over different chapters of his life, uh, chapters of great gain and great loss. God, I'm thankful that he's uh, preaching to us today from your word. Um, I believe this is a message that we all need. God, I pray you would speak clearly through him, that we would hear and sense your spirit in this room, and that, God, you would give us just the words that we require today to know you more, to love you more, and to understand your great love for us. We pray these things for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, it's great to be here with you today. Um, I pray for this church on a fairly regular basis, and I pray for Jeff more. Um, Not because of you. (laughs) I pray for Jeff because um, I think that he has a voice that needs to be heard by others as well as opening you up to hearing the voices of others. Uh, We've been good friends for over 20 years, and... um, um, that means that he was about four. Uh, no, he, uh, we, we have been ministry partners in all kinds of different areas, from being youth pastors to training youth pastors to, like uh, Don just said, um, even I, I planted a church in West Seattle, and I named it Doxa, and then um, we planted a different one in uh, Federal Way, and we named it Numa, and then when Jeff came, we planted one in Tacoma called uh, Soma, and it sounded like a Greek law firm, Doxa, Numa, and Soma, you know, but we... Uh, um, uh, as we did that, then uh, Federal Way and, and Tacoma merged together, and um, the West Seattle campus became a, a part of, of Mars Hill, and uh, now just being able to make this into a church that uh, has a vision for its community, and uh, you do have a reputation of being a loving church, so I'm grateful to be here with you today. So as we get started, um, Donald's already uh, prayed for us, and I want to cash in on those prayers by um, talking to you a little bit about what I do. Jeff said, well, just kind of show them what you do or tell them what you do or invite them into what you do. So in November, I resigned from my church, and in January, I went on staff with Western Seminary. And what I do at Western Seminary, they received a grant to start a Center for Pastoral Flourishing, so that's what I do. I'm directing and trying to build a Center for Pastoral Flourishing. And what that means is that pastors are just as messed up and jacked up as everyone else, and that comes as no surprise to us. We just like to believe that what they're saying is something they're living, and I'm just trying to help them do that, okay? Uh, so pastor's trying to help you do that, I'm trying to help the pastors do that. And what we're trying to figure out is, are there any stick points? And one of the things that um, hits high on the list that um, is actually something that everybody's wrestling with at some uh, level or another is emotional intelligence. And I want to work through that a little bit today, uh, looking at a passage, because um, it's one of the things that In a pastoral world, uh, very few pastors lose their job because they change theology. Uh, More pastors lose their job because they disqualify themselves morally. But the majority of pastors lose their job because they just couldn't handle relationships and their emotions well. Okay, And the interesting thing is even in the marketplace, the number one predictor of success is not your IQ. In fact, the average CEO of a uh, Fortune 500 company was a C-plus student. I have a fellow professor at the seminary that when he gives his lecture on that, he says, so if you get an A in a class, you missed out on part of life. Okay, That's his philosophy. Uh, mine is more the idea, I don't want anyone's success um, by certain measurements or their academics to get way out of sync with who they are as a person. I see it regularly and I've seen it for 
decades where people get talent and they're put in a position because of their talent and then their position demands that they use their talent and now they're outpacing their character and we've set them up for the collapse. And so as we kind of look at this today, I want to just start by... um, Quoting from Oz Guinness, uh, a fairly prolific author, who wrote, during the combination of capitalism, technology, and modern communication, the most powerful civilization ever, a global culture, is being formed. This global culture is the beast that threatens to swallow us in these days. The core values of the beast in the 21st century scream at us from computers, Billboards, televisions, DVDs, music, schools, newspapers, magazines, and iPods. The beast tells us happiness is found in having things. You should get all you can for yourself as quickly as you can. Security is found in money, power, status, and good health. Above all, you should seek all the pleasure, convenience, and comfort you can. God is irrelevant to everyday life. Christianity is just one of many alternative spiritualities. There are no moral absolutes. Whatever is true for you is what is true. You're not responsible for anyone but yourself. This life on earth is all there is. Now, ordinarily, whatever Oz Guinness says, I just go, yes. But this next sentence I have a problem with, maybe it's because I've lived in the Northwest most of my life, and I don't think I've ever seen a goldfish in the Pacific Ocean. So he goes, like goldfish swimming in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, unaware they are in the water, we too live oblivious to our beast. Like the Christians in the first century, we live in a culture shaped by the beast. We eat, drink, drive, watch TV and movies, attend school, shop, work, raise families, listen to music, and even participate in churches within a society shaped by the beast. This feeds the fire of the beast within us. I'm referring to the fears, the mistrust, the fierce self-will, the stubbornness, and the rebellion in our very depths. So in another way of saying it, we live in a culture that champions emotional non-intelligence, emotional immaturity, that allows us to be centered on us and gratify us. And everything starts to be whether or not we liked it. And it just pitches us a little bit because we should be living our lives for someone to like it. But it's not us. It's God. And what would it look like if we were to live that kind of life? I've started asking myself that question on a regular basis. What would it be like if God were actually in charge? Let's just pretend that was true. And so... I lose my car keys and I can't find them and I've got to go to another appointment. And both those things happen to me more frequently the older I get. I lose my car keys and I'm late for appointments. And so as that happens, my frustration starts to build. And I said, okay, God, I don't care if I find my keys. I want this moment to not be about my anxiety. I want this moment to be about our walk, and my walk with you isn't for sale for the lostness of some keys. And I put my walk with God up for sale every time I get on the road and somebody cuts in front of me, I lose it, you know? It's just like regularly my emotional immaturity blocks my spiritual um, presence from being able to express itself. 
Uh, maybe some of you are familiar with Pete Cazero, or, uh, who has written, uh, Cazero, who wrote um, The Emotionally Healthy Church, and he wrote a book, Emotionally Healthy Leader. His wife wrote a book, Emotionally Healthy Women. They're probably working on a book, Emotionally Healthy Dog. I don't know. It seems like there's emotionally healthy everything. And so uh, as we start to look at that, one of the things that he does say very clearly is that you cannot have a robust spirituality and a blunted emotional maturity. That somehow those communicate to each other. And that if we allow ourselves to be emotionally stunted, we will be spiritually stunted as well. You know how it goes. Uh, if you've ever been in a discussion that amped up to an argument, you said some great things. But the way you said it voided the whole thing. That's what happens when you've got a witness going or a testimony going or a relationship going with somebody and all of a sudden your emotions take over and you act in an unbecoming way and it seems like everything you were just building got trashed. So I wanna look at the idea that our spirituality and our emotions are pretty much in the same thing. In fact, Jesus said to this in response to somebody, when the scribes came up and heard uh, them disputing one another, they asked him, what's the greatest command? And Jesus said, the most important is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no, other great, there is no greater command. So Jesus is not somehow allowing us to silo or partition off ourself so that we just have this spiritual component that goes vertical. We have relations that are horizontal that have no connection to that. We have jobs that are just tasks and there's no relation to that. Jesus is saying heart, soul, mind, strength. It's you. Just like if you were to pull a trigger and shoot someone and kill them, they're not gonna send your trigger finger to prison you're going. And there's no way that we can walk with God with part of us and not walk with God with part of us. They're, they're tied together. So as we kind of look at that, you've heard the first part of the story as it was read by Amy. I want to just kind of capsulize that whole chapter. And if you have a Bible, we're in Daniel chapter three. I want to kind of look at that and, and see what happens. And most of you are familiar with the story as least as the fiery furnace goes, okay? So what's happening in Daniel is Daniel is one of the few prophets that writes in the middle of an exile. Babylon is the world's leading nation, is capturing nation after nation after nation. And as they capture Israel or Judah and they take captives back to Babylon, Daniel's one of those who gets captured. The other ones that go with him are his three friends and their Babylonian names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay, they're the three that get called up to this king. What happens in chapter two, the chapter just before the one we're looking at, is the king has a dream. He says, I need somebody to interpret the dream. All these people are saying, I'll interpret the dream, tell me what it is. He goes, oh, no, no, you tell me what the dream is and I'll know that you have the power to interpret it. They said, no one can do that. Daniel came forward and said, no one can do that except God and he's given me the interpretation of your dream and he told it to him. And the king put him over all the advisors in the entire country. 
Babylon is a province within the empire of Babylon. And he said, so in the capital province, here's what I'd like to make as changes. I'd like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to work with me. And so that's what had happened. So when they hit chapter three, and it says some Chaldeans come to the king, and they're saying, hey, there are certain Jews that you've appointed as leaders who aren't bowing down to this golden statue. These guys have been displaced. These guys have some skin in the game. They've lost their jobs to these guys who aren't playing the game. And so now they're bringing that conviction against them. There's another place in this chapter where it says, we won't bow down to your golden statue or to your gods. As though there was a distinction. And I have a feeling that what was happening was that Nebuchadnezzar is this king who's bringing all these countries together He's realizing we don't have any kind of people identity anymore. We've got cultures of Chaldeans and Jews and whatever, who else, whoever else they're conquering. And so they bring them together and they're allowing them to keep their gods. How are they going to prohibit that? And so he builds a bigger one, this golden, probably a tower that looks like the Washington Monument. He builds this golden monument and says, everybody will bow down to that. I don't care if you're Hindu, if you're Jewish or whatever. He said, we will all above that be Babylonian. And that will be the unifying of the country. So when these three guys who are political leaders say, we won't bow down, they're threatening what he thinks is national unity. They're challenging him. They're not simply worshiping their God anymore. And he's not used to anybody challenging him. He is the power on the earth at that time. And so he goes into kind of an ultimatum with them of an if and an if not. And he says to them, um, if you will worship the statue right now, all will be good. But if you don't, you're gonna be thrown into the fiery furnace. An if and an if not. If you worship, all is good. If not, you'll be thrown into the fiery furnace. These guys are so non-afraid of him that they don't respond in fear. They respond in courage and they use the same formula back to him, an if and an if not. And they go, if God wants to, he can save us. And if not, we're not bowing down. And the scriptures say that that made him so furious, his countenance or his expression towards the three men changed. And you've probably seen somebody get that out of control. He's that out of control. It says, build the furnace seven times hotter. He calls some of his mighty men, who means they were decorated warriors from his army, to bind these three guys up and throw them into the furnace. And as they bring them up to the edge, they throw them into the furnace. The heat is so hot, it kills the mighty men, and the three guys fall in. And the king gets up, and as he looks into the furnace, he says, wait a minute, didn't we, didn't we send three guys in there? And weren't they all tied up? How come I see four guys walking around in there? And it's so hot, no one's gonna get close enough he goes, could you guys come out and we could have a little chat? So uh, the three guys come out and he says, no God could do that except the God. And then he makes a new national declaration. 
So just like he said, O peoples, O nations, O languages, all of you will bow down to this monument. Now he says, O people, O nations, O languages, anyone who disrespects their God will be torn in two. See, move right from power. I will make national unity through this conformity to power. I will make national unity through this new conformity. He didn't learn anything. He was emotionally frozen in some immaturity power thinking rather than in relations and how do I build consensus or whatever he was supposed to do as someone who could lead a people. He was used to dominating a people. And you have these three guys who respectfully disobey. And the consequence is they're thrown into a furnace and the consequence is that they don't die. And when he can't kill them, he promotes them. And the interesting thing is he promotes them back up to where they were with Daniel and and he protects them with this new ordinance. I wanna suggest that there's a couple things that are going on that are pretty amazing. One is that these three guys, when they're if, if not statement, they're convinced God can rescue them. But they say, if not, we're not bowing down. When I left my position at Imago Day Church in Portland, I liked being a pastor. I loved being a pastor. And I um, loved the people. And so thinking about leaving was thinking about losing something that I loved. And um, I'm not sure I can do this new thing. And it hasn't been done, and I'm building this thing, and it's a little scary. Like, what if it doesn't work? And I don't know if you've ever heard anybody say, well, if you could do anything you wanted and failure was not an option, what would you do? You know? Well, I had this friend who said to me, if you did this and failed, would it have been worth trying? And when I could answer yes, I knew that's what I was supposed to do, you know? I, the pressure was not on me to succeed. The responsibility was on me to obey. And these guys say to Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer. They're basically saying, you don't need to give us a day to think about it. You don't need to give us an hour to deliberate. We know our answer right now. We're not bound down. There's no contest. This is not up for debate. This is our conviction. God is who we bow down to, not Babylon, and we're not going to do it. And that's what infuriated him because his identity was being in control. And when he wasn't in control of them, he didn't have an identity. Their identity was following God and they could go to their grave following God. He couldn't rip out their identity from who they were. So I want to look at some qualities of emotional intelligence. Because that's what I am doing, is I'm helping pastors evaluate themselves and trying to figure out how to be better followers of Christ and better equippers for you to follow Christ. But I don't think it's just applicable to pastors. I think it's applicable to all of us. And so I'd like to just look at a few characteristics and see how the men in this passage did not respond according to the beast and Nebuchadnezzar represented the beast, that they fought in two different ways. And I think that when we read this passage, it's so easy to see Nebuchadnezzar as a jerk, isn't it? 
It's so easy to see these three guys as the hero and immediately go, I want to be one of those three guys. But in God's story, Jesus is the hero. He's the hero of your life. You're not. You're the supporting cast member so Jesus can be seen as awesome in each one of our lives. That's what we're here for, is to image him as image bearers. And so we have this picture of this story to where I think the way we're supposed to read it is that we're supposed to see those three guys representing Jesus. And we're supposed to see Nebuchadnezzar as representing us. That we would get livid if God were to say, this is what I want you to do. And it took you out of control and took you out of your agenda. That we would fight it like crazy. That's what we're supposed to look at in this passage and go, that's not what I want to be, God. I don't want to be Nebuchadnezzar. I want you to be in my life that you might live through me like one of those three. So let's just look at self-regard for a minute. How we view ourselves. I think Nebuchadnezzar saw himself as the closest thing to God on earth. He had more power than any man. He could express his want and it was done by nations. I think the guys saw themselves as children of God. And they were highly regarded by God so they weren't threatened by a king or any other status. Reality testing, he thought his perception was reality. For these guys, they believed that their reality was that God could save them. Okay, They lived trusting God that he could save them and if he didn't, they were okay with it. It was worth failing at, dying for their faith. When it came to uh, power or problem solving, the king just used power to do it. For the men, they were able to redefine it in such a way to say, if we don't get rescued, we're okay. Look at how this guy, the king repositions himself. He gets real high scores and flexibility. He goes from, hey, worship the golden monument to, hey, worship their God. You know, he doesn't care what it is just as long as he can get momentum for his people as a nation. When it comes to something like assertiveness, wow, he's pretty assertive. He gets so urgent and worked up, he builds a fire that costs killing his own men. But when we look at assertiveness with these three guys, they tell their opinion. They're not afraid of him. If not, they respond in exactly the same way. That's what infuriates him. They're not intimidated. They're talking to him. So um, in this job I have, there are people that I work with around the country and there was this guy that... Uh, wanted a piece of, a, a document for me. He goes, Bill, I want this document and I need it by Friday. And uh, I didn't, I have only had administrative help for the last two months out of, our last two weeks out of the last uh, six months. And I said, I don't have an administrator. Administration is not my wheelhouse. So I'll get it to you when I can. And I'll really try to get it to you by the end of the week. And the end of the week comes and he doesn't get it. So he calls my boss. And he goes, hey, I didn't get this thing I asked from for Bill. And my boss emails him and says, well, Bill and I have a meeting on Tuesday. How about we take the last half hour of our meeting and talk to you? And when I saw that email, I went, 
hey, I have an hour's worth of stuff. I'm not giving a half an hour away to him. And he goes, well, then just come in a half hour early. So we're in this meeting and I said, can I just tell you how that made me feel? He goes, yeah. I said, I've been a youth pastor for over 16 years. And in fact, I was a college uh, director uh, of a ministry up in Bellingham where I had 1,800 college kids. I had 110 small groups. I had 12 people on staff. So there aren't very many pastors that oversee a ministry of that magnitude. And I said, but they never treated me as a peer because I wasn't a senior pastor. I said, what I just felt like was that that guy called my senior pastor and said, get your youth pastor to give me the assignment when I want it because I want it on Friday. He goes, I can see that. Do you want me to talk to him? I said, no, I'll take care of it in the conference call that you schedule. So we had the conference call and we get down to the end of the call and he said, Bill, you sent me the material and I edited it. Did that bother you that I edited it? And I said, no, it's a living document. We're gonna be learning and editing the rest of our lives. That's fine. But I'll tell you what did bother me. He said, what's that? I said, you couldn't make me do what you wanted on your time schedule. So you tried to use power in my world to make me do it. And if I wouldn't do it, to at least get in trouble for not meeting your expectations. I said, um, you need to trust me that if I don't get it to you by Friday, I couldn't get it to you by Friday. Not that I didn't care to get it to you by Friday. And that if you applied more pressure, I would have. And he was quiet for a minute. And he said, I own it. And uh, when we hung up, my boss said to me, you just set the culture for the Center for Pastoral Flourishing. You just said that we're gonna deal with people as people, not as items to be powered through and get what we want. You know, there are pastors who live like that. And if we have facilitators that live like that, we don't stand a chance of helping a pastor break free. And if you live like that, and you just feel like I'm gonna power up more stuff to get more done, you're way more in the Nebuchadnezzar camp than you are in the three guys camp. I just wanna suggest that as we look through this, we need to ask God, how can I keep those things together? My emotional life, my spiritual pursuit, because if I don't keep them together, the emotional life will be the ceiling that you'll hit, not your spiritual life. You can have a quiet time the rest of your life, and if you don't deal with your emotions, you're gonna stay an infant in your Christian life. Looking at flexibility, those guys were willing to say, God is God no matter what the circumstance. You know person after person after person who's ready to bail on God if the circumstances don't please them. That's not flexible. That's not emotional maturity. How about stress tolerance? Um, when they, when, when the king was pushing on them and they pushed back, he lost it. When he pushed on them, they responded in courage, not in cowardice. They didn't, they, they were assertive. When we look at optimism, they, uh, the king wants to legislate unity and he believes he can do it. Those guys believed that whatever God wanted was the best thing that they could possibly do. I know several of you know me and you know a lot of my story. 
And you know that uh, about 12 years ago, my wife died. And the hardest thing for me to do after that was trust God. And it wasn't because I didn't think he was in charge. I just didn't think he liked me. And I didn't believe that he thought my welfare even hit his consideration. He was just doing whatever he wanted and rolled over whoever he wanted. That was what I had to wrestle through. You know? And I had to come to the place of saying, like these guys, even if I die, it's okay, it's God's story, it's not my story. I, God invited me into his story and I wanna be a supporting cast member to Jesus being the hero. And each one of us has been invited into that kind of role. So I wanna land this by having you be in just kind of a prayerful listening mode. I'm gonna read back through those same characteristics, only I'm gonna do a brief description and then I'm going to do if I, what I think it would look like if God were in charge in our heart, our thoughts, okay? And what I want you to do is I want you to, as you're prayerfully listening, just saying, God, I'm open to however you want to tap me on the soul and say, that's what I want us to work on, okay? It's not a condemning thing. It's a call to your next growth level spot. So, Put your heart in some kind of reflective posture, if you would, please. And let me read through these. The first one, self-regard. Do I see myself as God does? Or have I added or subtracted to that? If God were in control, I would see myself as chosen, loved, and of great value to God in his story. Reality testing. Do I let scripture interpret me and my world or do my world and I interpret scripture? If God were in charge, I would believe that the Bible is God's truth for us to know how to live. Problem solving. Do I seek to solve symptoms in my life or am I willing to do the hard work of the problems in my life? If God were in charge, I would see problems as an opportunity to trust God and love others more. Assertiveness. Do I express my opinion or do I let fears quiet me? If God were in charge, I would feel like my opinion is worth sharing even if it's not the only perspective that should be considered. Impulse control. Do I often regret a word or an action that was my rash response? If God were in char charge, I would respond with biblical identity and I'd bring a non-anxious presence to anxious situations. Flexibility. Do I welcome alternatives and edits to my plans? If God were in charge, I would give more weight to the journey as it's the tool that God uses for transformation. Stress tolerance. Do I respond well to unexpected, stressful situations? If God were in charge, I would have emotional margin because guilt and shame and fear would be lessened because of Jesus in my life. 
optimism. Do I believe things are gonna work out? If I believe God is in charge, I will believe that he can use all things to tell his story. So I need to look for him telling his story through me. I hope as you heard those, you heard God say to you, I want to work on this with you. And I would like to pray with you that you could believe that God wants to do that. Father, I know there are people here that have had the same cycle. Maybe it's anger. And anger is only a secondary emotion to fear. God, would you help people here trust you and fear less? Would you help the people that are stuck in the wrongs that have been done against them to release those and experience the wholeness of knowing who they are in you? God, for those who are bitter with you because things haven't worked out the way they wanted, God, I pray that today there would be delight in finding their role in your story and not having to hijack center stage from Jesus. God, I want to ask that you would do the work in our lives that frees Jesus to be seen by the world you let us live in. In Jesus' name, amen.